Good evening. Welcome to the Lewis Clark the Nexum Lecture. This is the uh, last public lecture of the uh, academic year, and we're very pleased to have Matt Ridley here. And Lewis Clark the Nexum was uh, a graduate of the Princeton class of 1879. At his death in 1912, he left $25,000 to Princeton to establish a lectureship for um, a series of public lectures on the subject of scientific interest, is what he said. Previous lecturers in this series have been Francis Crick, Carl Sagan, Richard Leakey, um, Julian Huxley, Robert Oppenheimer, Bob May, who we heard last week, and actually Bob May, I just discovered, gave the same uh, a talk in the same lecture series 20 years ago. And we also have had Max Delbrook, Sidney Brenner, so it's a, uh, we've had um, the great pleasure of hosting some of the greatest scientists of the 20th century to give this lecture since 1912. And um, it's a real delight for <clears throat> me to be able to introduce Matt Ridley. Um, if any of my students, undergraduate students, are here from uh, Woodrow Wilson School 320, they've read Matt Ridley's book, The Red Queen. And uh, so seven or 800 students, I see one in the back over there, yes, that's right. Uh, others around. Uh, at least 800 to 1,000 Princeton students were forced to read his book if they wanted to do well on the midterm exam. And every year, it's, it's really quite remarkable that a number of sci uh, social science and humanities students come to me at the end of the course and say that they didn't know that the world worked like that until they read Matt's book, The Red Queen, Sex and the Evolution of Human Nature, which is actually was written in 1993, but it's just... Such a fantastic book that I've been assigning it year after year. Matt's also written The Origin of Virtue, a 1996 book. And in 1999, he wrote a book um, uh, called Genome. And his newest book, which he's going to talk about uh, today, is Nature via Nurture, which was published in, in 2003. Uh, Matt has a wonderful way with words. He's one of the most talented science writers that um, I've ever had the pleasure of uh, reading and, and meeting as well. Uh, his books have been translated into 23 languages, and they've been shortlisted for six literary prizes. Um, he earned his bachelor's and, and PhD, uh, I guess it was called DPhil degree, from Oxford University in zoology. Uh, he's been a writer for many years. He um, held a position at The Economist magazine where he was science editor and American editor between 1983 and 1992. Um, he's also been a columnist for the Sunday and Daily Telegraph in, uh, in England. And he's written numerous articles and book reviews for the London Times, the uh, Guardian, the Literary Review, New Scientist, New Statesman Time, Newsweek, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Atlantic Monthly, and many, many other uh, publications. He has a real talent for being able to present um, difficult science in a way that uh, lay people can understand it. Um, he's currently chairman of the International Center for Life, which is a, a science park and visitor center uh, devoted to, to life sciences. And so without further ado, Matt, please come up to the uh, podium. Thank you, Lee, very much indeed. Uh, that's very kind of you. Lee's on commission, 
Um, he gets 10% of every book sale that he, 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 he does. Um, uh, it's really a tremendous honor to be standing here um, in the footsteps of those people Lee mentioned. It's also quite spectacularly intimidating um, because I'm not in the same category as, as those scientists. I'm not even a scientist. I'm just a writer. Um, uh, and uh, that, of course, does give me a, a license um, to say things that scientists can't always um, I tend to go by the motto of, of one of the former editors of The Economist um, who once said that your job is to simplify and then exaggerate. Uh, <laughs> and and that's, uh, that's kind of what I'm going to do tonight, um, uh, I think. Um, my title is How Nature Turns on Nurture, um, which is a subtitle of the paperback version of the book, uh, which is The Agile Gene. I think it's a quadruple entendre, but if anyone... Um, can think of a fifth one while we're going through. Uh, they're welcome. There's, there's uh, electrical switching turning on. There's uh, sexual arousal. Uh, there's um, retaliatory aggression, if you think about it, um, turning on somebody who's, who's chasing you. And there's kind of one subject that revolves around another, you know, turns on, on something. So, so uh, um, I'm rather pleased with this quadruple entendre. Um, and my point, my argument is going to be that a solution to the nature-nurture argument, which has disfigured, in some ways, um, science for more than a century, um, has been staring us in the face for quite a while now. Uh, and it revolves around the fact that genes are at the mercy of our experience, that genes are switched on and off by things that happen to us, uh, environmental things, external things to the organism. Uh, and therefore, um, the idea that they are somehow the expression of nature uh, whereas nurture is non-genetic, uh, is wrong, there's a complex interaction between the two which will explain a lot of the paradoxes of the nature-nurture debate. Um, I want to start by reminding us of our ignorance and, and of how far we've come in just a short, few short years. This is a quotation from Time magazine, February 1997. It's not intended to pick on Time magazine at all because this quotation virtually verbatim appeared all over the world in the 90s. Um, everybody assumed that there were going to be about 100,000 uh, human genes, and about half of them would be necessary for building this very complicated machine that we were very proud of called the human brain. Um, and notice, you know, there's no caveats in, in this um, uh, statement. There's no we think or maybe or about. Um, that's kind of what people were saying at the time, as late as 1997. Um, well, we started counting genes when genomes were, were, were sequenced, um, and the first animal to be sequenced was the fruit fly, and that came in with about 13,000 genes, um, and that uh, seemed about right, if you like. The nematode was a bit, a bit of a surprise, a, a much more primitive and microscopic animal turned out to have more genes than a fruit fly. Uh, the third animal that, that was sequenced was the human being, which has 24,000 genes, we now know. This was a moment of profound humiliation for our species. Um, <laughs> As you can remember, people were weeping openly in the street at the news. Um, uh, and it gets worse because uh, a rice plant has um, 40,000 genes. So there's clearly something wrong with, with our model that because we're so brilliant and sophisticated, we must have more genes to, to make us brilliant and sophisticated. Um, in fact, it gets even worse because... Um, now that we've done some other mammals, we know that basically they also have 24,000 genes. Um, I put the dog on here, even though it hasn't been sequenced, because I'm guessing 
that's simplifying and exaggerating a bit. Um, I'm guessing that, um, uh, that dogs will have 24,000 genes too because we now know that basically a mammal has 24,000 genes. And why do we know that? Because basically mammals have the same, not just the same number of genes, but the same genes. Basically you have the same set of genes as a mouse, so how come you don't look like a mouse? Clearly there's something wrong with the idea that genes determine who we are and yet they, uh, we have the same genes as a mouse. And the answer, of course, is that we uh, switch on our genes uh, in a different pattern and a different order than a mouse. So it's not the fact that the genes are different, but that we use them in, in, in a different way. And my favorite analogy for this process is a literary one, uh, because, um, uh, and if you'll forgive me, I'm going to get quite specific here, um, Shakespeare used 31,500 different words, um, 17,000 more than once. I didn't count them, don't worry. Someone else has done that. Um, which is about the same order of magnitude as we're talking about, the 24,000 genes. Um, and yet he used those words in different patterns and different orders to produce completely different plays, different poems, and so on. And it's the same idea that, that you, can, you can produce a different uh, result by using the same um, units in different order and different patterns. Um, so Hamlet is written with, let's face it, roughly the same words as Othello, um, <laughs> but in a different order. Uh, and if you don't believe me, um, here, are, <laughs> here are the ten commonest words in Hamlet, Othello, and Lear. Um, uh, and um, you see there's a huge overlap. I mean, basically, they use... Yeah, I mean, what's the difference between these plays? Um, uh, interestingly, you can see that uh, Othello and Lear are slightly more closely related than Othello and Hamlet because the, the list is more similar. Um, but the point is that, uh, you know, this is flippant, but the, the, the point is that the, the ten commonest words which appear in sort of every sentence or every paragraph of these plays is equivalent to the, the genes that are expressed in every tissue in, in, in all these organisms. And when you get down the list to the much rarer words, you're getting the equivalence of, of the genes that are expressed only in some tissues uh, and in different patterns and different tissues and different species. And for um, Princeton, it's probably not um, a surprise to remind ourselves that the, the best example of this are the Hox genes, the genes which uh, were discovered uh, by Eric Wieshaus and others uh, to reveal that the body pattern of a fruit fly uh, is laid down by a series of genes lying head to tail in front of each other on the chromosome, and that the same genes recur in mice, and they do the same job. They tell the mouse where to grow a head or where to grow a tail. They're not quite the same. There are slight differences, but they're similar enough so that you can take one gene uh, uh, from uh, a mouse and insert it into a fruit fly in place of the equivalent gene in the fruit fly, and you'll get normal fruit fly development. We can read each other's software, if you like. Um, and uh, that, of course, shows the deep homology, the fact that human be uh, sorry, mice and fruit flies diverged 600 million years ago, but they, uh, they, their common ancestor must have had these genes. Um, uh, and it also shows how, uh, if you wish to produce a different shaped organism, uh, you do so by switching on the genes uh, in a different uh, way. Here's an example from the Hox genes. The Hox C8 gene is roughly the gene which in, in vertebrates tells the creature where to grow a thorax. So if you want to grow a chicken which has a long neck and a short thorax, 
and you switch it on further back in the body. If you want to grow a mouse, which has a short neck and a long thorax, then you switch it on further forward. And if you want to make an animal that's all thorax, like a python, then you switch it on throughout the body. Beautiful example of, of using the same gene in a different pattern in a different order to produce different bodies. Well, that's all about bodies and things. It's not about um, behavior. Uh, and the nature-nurture debate largely revolves around behavior and, and, and how we act. Um, well, I want to just pause here to, to show a map of, of some genes on the human Y chromosome, which is the, uh, the chromosome that men have and women don't. Uh, and it obviously, therefore, has genes relate on it relating to masculinity. Um, and some of these genes um, are well-known. Others are not so well-known. <laughs> well. I think from your reaction, I can, I can uh, detect that you've, you've, you've spotted that this is a spoof. Um, these aren't real genes. Uh, this is a joke done by Jane Gitchier at UCSF many years ago. Um, but it, it, why is it funny? Well, the reason it's funny is because these are all things men do. And they do them all over the world. This is just as funny in Europe as it is here. Um, and that shows that in the, some sense there is something masculine about these behaviors, and men are basically creatures with Y chromosomes compared with women who don't have Y chromosomes. So in some sense, the Y chromosome must be causing these behaviors when it interacts with a modern technological world. Um, but it's patently absurd that there would be specific genes for these specific behaviors. So this, what I'm trying to do here is point out the absurdity of specific genes for specific behaviors without um, doing away with the idea that there is um, uh, a nature element to, to these, these sorts of things. So how can we resolve it? There clearly can't be genes for these, and yet, and yet um, we can uh, end up behaving in, in predictable ways. Well, just before I go on to that, um, this is a real map of the real human Y chromosome um, completed a couple of years ago, um, and it turns out to be absolutely fascinating. It doesn't have anything particularly to do with nature and nurture, but it is a, a, an interesting story in itself, so I thought it would be worth digressing for a second. The, the little um, black arrow things are the locations of particular genes on the Y chromosome. Um, and uh, what is extraordinary about them is that they always appear in pairs, one facing one way and one facing the other. Um, and it turns out when you sequence the whole uh, chromosome, a lot of these uh, paired genes um, are actually part of huge sequences that are repeated backwards. Palindromes, gigantic palindromes, like um, Abel was I, ere I saw Elba, you know, Napoleon's uh, famous lament, um, or, or the one about the, um, the man who built the Panama Canal, uh, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama, um, which is a palindrome. Uh, the, the triangles along the top are the... Um, where the palindromes are. And this is just a sort of, this is for the wow factor. Uh, P1, the, the palindrome of the top right, is as long as half the complete works of Shakespeare. And it's repeated accurately uh, backwards to 99.99%. Um, other species have palindromes like this, but they're different. 
So there's something going on to keep these palindromes accurately representing each other. And what seems to be going on is that um, the uh, Y chromosome does not have a partner to compare its genes with, and so it's invented a mechanism of internal comparison to be able to check the spelling of its genes uh, in the two arms of the palindrome. Well, that was a digression. Back to um, um, uh, genes and behavior. The traditional classic way of, of understanding the, re the relationship of genes to behavior has been the, the study of adoption and twins, um, which now is on a fairly firm basis and shows fairly firmly that, um, uh, that there is undoubtedly, in a modern society, a degree of um, uh, influence from heredity upon things like weight and personality and intelligence. And these are just summaries of, of some various studies showing that um, uh, adopted children living together um, are not similar at all um, in these respects, whereas uh, identical twins living apart are extremely similar. Well, this would seem to say that nurture plays no role and nature plays a huge role. It doesn't say that at all. Uh, it just says that um, uh, when you... Um, when you hold the conditions of nurture fairly similar, uh, you can, the differences are bound to be down to nature, if you like. Um, and heritability is a very, very slippery and, 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 and difficult concept, I think. Um, maybe others find it easier. But it, because the more nurture you provide, the more nature will create the differences between people. Um, and I want to give just a few examples of this. Um, in a society where very few people read, um, uh, literacy can cause short sight, if you like, because uh, people who become literate are more likely to become short-sighted. Once everybody's literate, the differences between who's short-sighted and who's not short-sighted is going to be down to the genetics of people. So the more literacy there is, the more heritable myopia becomes. The more food people have, the more heritable obesity becomes. The more stress people have, the more heritable depression becomes, and so on. So the more nurture you have, the more nature you have. That's why you can't oppose nature and nurture. But what I want to do now is just look at some specific genes uh, on a real human genome uh, that, that are essentially the genes involved in getting nurture into the organism, if you like, the genes in, involved in, in experience. Um, this is a genome. It's my genome, as you can probably tell. Um, uh, and um, there's my Y chromosome, proving I'm a man. Um, uh, and uh, on chromosome 7, there is a gene called FOXP2, um, which was discovered comparatively recently and which turns out to play a very interesting role in, in, in language. It was originally found in the... The, uh, a study of a family in London called the K.E. family, uh, a large pedigree in which there was a specific impairment of both speech and language, um, ability to, to understand linguistic concepts as well as ability to express yourself in speech, which was quite clearly running through the family, and that's the family tree on, on the far left. Um, to cut a long story short, after a, a lot of work, it was found that the differences between people in that family who had the problem and people who didn't have the problem was down to a mutation in the FOXP2 gene on chromosome 7 here. Um, and since then, other people with specific language 
uh, inherited language problems have turned out to have mutations in this same gene. So clearly this is, let's call it the language gene. This is the gene that, that on that Y chromosome kind of chart would, have, would be the one that makes you speak English or whatever. Um, uh, well, there's a problem, which is, of course, that um, mice have this gene too, and they don't speak language. Um, so what's going on here? How can we have a, 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 a mutation affecting language um, in this way? Well, clearly what's happening is that the gene is slightly different in people than it is in other species. And it turns out to be interesting, different in a very, very interesting way. Um, this is a family tree of the gene as opposed to um, uh, of, of, of other things. And the black bars represent silent mutational changes in the gene, so changes that have not changed the, the protein that results from the gene. Um, and you can see that between the chimpanzee and the mouse, if you go back up the family tree and down again, there's only one non-silent um, change. There's 131 um, uh, silent changes. So this is a very, very highly conserved gene that doesn't change very much. Um, uh, and um, uh, and, and yeah, it expressed very similarly in, in us and in, in other creatures, except when you get to the human lineage, where you find two gray bars, in other words, two uh, um, uh, non-silent um, changes, changes that do alter the protein. Um, and moreover, if you look at the sequence around that part of the gene, you find uh, that it's been subject to a very strong selective sweep within the last 200,000 years which means essentially that people who had this human version of the gene survived and people who didn't died out. Um, and the date, uh, I won't go into how you can do the dating, Svante Parvo's uh, lab in Germany did it. But what's so intriguing is that, of course, this is the period when the human revolution happened, something like 200,000 to 100,000 years ago in Africa. A small group of people began to suddenly do culture and all these kind of things and began to spill out of Africa all over the world. Um, so what we're looking at here might be one of the mutations, possibly the mutation, but it's very unlikely to be the most important because it's the first one we've stumbled on, um, which happened and somehow changed the wiring of our brains so as to make it easier for us. Well, it didn't make us speak, did it? It made, us, it, made it possible for us to learn languages from each other. It made it, made it because we have, we still have to learn a language, we have to grow up in a speaking environment in order to, to be able to speak. So what we're talking about here is a genetic, genetic mutation that made a certain kind of nurture, i.e. the learning of language, more possible. Another and similar gene, um, uh, also a gene of nurture, if you like, uh, is the vasopressin receptor gene on chromosome 12 which is one of several genes involved in the process of pair bonding in, in rodents. Um, in order to, stand, to understand what this is going on, you have to know a bit about the love life of, of voles. Basically, most voles are promiscuous. That is, boy meets girl, boy mates with girl, boy disappears. Um, but in one species of vole, called the prairie vole, um, uh, this doesn't happen. They mate, and then they stay together to bring up the children and wash the dishes together and, and that kind of thing. And um, uh, what's the difference between the prairie vole uh, and other voles that makes it um, uh, more monogamous, more likely to, to remain pair bonded? Well, to cut a long story short, um, there are two hormones, one more important in the female and one more important in the male. Each hormone is produced by a gene. 
but that gene is not different in the species. But the receptor for that gene is different um, and is expressed in different parts of the brain. So here's a prairie vole on the left expressing the vasopressin receptor uh, in the lower part of its brain, and the montane vole, which is promiscuous, is expressing it in a different part of, of the brain. Um, and um, a, a whole series of experiments have, have now been done. This is by uh, uh, Larry Young and Tom Insull at uh, Emory University, um, which show that essentially when you inject um, oxytocin into a, a, a female brain or vasopressin into a male brain, um, the rodent will basically fall in love with the nearest um, rodent, a bit like um, uh, in Midsummer Night's Dream, where, um, um, sorry to keep going back to Shakespeare, but um, why not? Um, now, what's the difference between the genes, then? Why is the gene different in, in, in the, the, the monogamous vole than in, than in the polygamous vole? Uh, it turns out that the gene itself uh, is not different, but the control region, the sequence upstream of the gene that tells the gene how and when to switch itself on, is different. And in the prairie vole, that's the monogamous species, a huge chunk of very repetitive text that goes kata, 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 like this, um, has been inserted into the, into the gene. So all you have to do is insert a lot of katas into the upstream region of the vasopressin receptor gene of a promiscuous species, and it'll turn monogamous. Well, is that really what you have to do? And the answer is that you can't, it doesn't work for a montane vole, but it does work for a meadow vole, which is promiscuous, and it's now been done that you essentially give the meadow vole the prairie vole version of the vasopressin receptor gene regulatory region, um, and it immediately becomes um, much more interested in remaining bonded um, to, to its partner. I've actually cheated here. This is a picture of prairie voles on the right. But <laughs> I thought I'd better just say that just in case there's someone in the audience who's, you know, who can tell the difference. Um, um, I think, again, this is an extraordinary uh, series of experiments. Uh, you should know, incidentally, that human beings have um, vasopressin receptors that these are expressed in a pattern in the brain which you can't, you can't read across to a mouse brain because our brains are so different, luckily. Um, um, but that, um, uh, that we have a very repetitive box at the front of our uh, gene, um, and that box is highly variable in length between individual human beings. I'll just leave that fact out there. For <laughs> you to think about um, but the point is, this is a gene which is involved in mediating an environmental experience, i.e. the meeting of a mate. Um, it's not a gene for sort of creating uh, a monogamous behavior. It's, it's, it's a gene for responding to, to, to a situation where you meet another partner and you mate with them in a different way, depending on... Uh, so you, you, you react differently according uh, to, to an environmental experience, depending on which version of the gene you've got. The third gene I want to talk about is, the, is on the X chromosome, the one that uh, men have only one copy of, uh, and women have two copies of, uh, and that's the monoamine oxidase A gene. Um, this is part of a long series of experiments by, um, uh, sorry, a long, long series of studies by Terry Moffat and her colleagues on, in New Zealand um, on uh, 
group of people who've been followed throughout their lives at regular intervals uh, to collect data on their behavior um, and lots of other things about them. And it turns out that some of these people were maltreated as children. They were in abusive homes. Uh, some of them became highly antisocial, i.e. getting into trouble with the law, etc. Um, is there a correlation? Well, yes, there is. Does that mean that uh, being maltreated causes uh, you to become antisocial? Well, maybe, but there's another possibility, which is that you uh, inherit the antisocial tendency from abusive parents. Those are perhaps two alternatives. But hang on, there may be a third alternative, which is that it's a sort of interesting combination of the two. Um, and this is what uh, she, um, Terry Moffat has found, which is that if you have the highly active version of the monoamine oxidase A gene, it's more active because it's got a different length, length uh, uh, regulatory region in front of it, um, then uh, childhood maltreatment has less of an effect on you if you have the um, less active version of the gene, then childhood maltreatment causes you to become much more strongly antisocial. So there's an interaction here between the gene and the environment. Um, you need, as it were, both to have the vulnerable genetics and to have the abusive behavior if you're going to become antisocial. People argued with this study and said it's not absolutely clear that what we're seeing is not a a purely inherited phenomenon, but it becomes much clearer when we look at her second example, which is uh, the 5-HTT gene, the serotonin transporter gene on chromosome 17, um, where she found an interesting correlation between stress and depression. Um, same, same cohort, same people in New Zealand, and what she's looking at is how many stressful events have they experienced in their lives? Well, you might say that's rather difficult to measure, but we're talking, you know, she's got particular categories like bereavement or divorce or whatever it is. Um, uh, and what percentage of them end up with, with severe depression? And it turns out that um, uh, if you have a small number of stressful experiences, um, it doesn't matter which version of the gene you've got, um, you're just as likely to end up depressed, not very likely. Uh, if you've got a large number of stressful experiences, then people with two versions of the uh, short um, uh, version of the gene um, are much, much more likely to become depressed than people with two long versions of the gene. Now, these two studies seem to me to be absolutely vital because they're getting us away from the idea, the, 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 um, the blueprint theory of the gene, if you like, where the gene causes the behavior. What the gene causes is your tendency to respond to something in the environment um, in one way rather than in another. Um, so how can a gene be involved in, 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 in something like stress? Um, if you um, are having a stressful experience, um, uh, it's well known that uh, it can result in... in, in um, increased susceptibility to um, infection or other kinds of illness. Um, what's going on here? Well, what, clearly you absorb the stressful experience through your nervous system, through your brain. Um, the result of that is that your brain actually tells the adrenal glands to produce, or well, is it, I'm not sure where they come from, but it tells some gland to produce cortisol. 
and cortisol uh, affects your immune system. It actually reduces your immune function. Well, how does it do that? How does cortisol affect the, the immune system? Uh, it turns out that once it's bound to a protein receptor, cortisol actually blocks the expression of certain genes. It itself switches off genes, turns off um, nature, if you like. Um, so what's happening is here that some, some stressful experience from outside your body, such as an exam, uh, has actually altered which genes are turned on in your body. Um, it turns out that, that uh, an awful lot of the uh, promoters on the fronts of genes that switch them on and off um, are responsive to um, particularly the, uh, these kinds of hormones. And that, that's how, how a lot of these hormones work, is by rushing around switching genes on and off. Um, I want to um, compare that also by, by going even a step further and talking about the genes involved in, in a process of, of, of actual learning, of, of building up a memory of, of, of some event. If you um, wish to torture a, a fruit fly, um, the one way to do it is to put a, a metal grid in its, its um, uh, test tube and put an electric shock through the... Um, well, the, what you do is, you first of all, when the fruit fly lands on the grid, you puff um, a uh, little puff of smelly um, substance into the test tube, uh, and immediately afterwards, you put a... Sorry, that had a sound effect there, but never mind. Uh, you put an electric shock through the, uh, through the grid, um, and the fruit fly says, ouch, and flies away. Um, now, why should you want to do this? Well, um, uh, Seema Benza developed this technique to test uh, whether, and whether these fruit flies could learn. And at the time, people thought flies couldn't learn at all. Um, but what he showed very quickly was that uh, the fruit flies very quickly learned that the, that the smelly substance puffed into the test tube is going to lead to an electric shock, and they get off the grid uh, before the shock comes. Except some of them don't. Some of them just stand there and wait for the shock. Well, that's presumably because some of them can't smell, but when you've ruled them out, you're left with others that, that can smell but won't get off the grid. Why is that? It turns out that this is a useful screen for finding mutants, mutant fruit flies, that can't learn. They can do everything else, but they can't lay down a new memory. And through this technique, um, Benzer and his colleagues have tracked down 17 genes which can be mutated and cause uh, a failure of, of learning. Uh, they're essentially all, all related to a system called the Kreb enzyme. Um, and what these genes are, mediating the switching on and off of um, genes that change the shape of neurons so as to change connections in the brain. So by... Uh, interfering with one of them, you interfere with the pathway and you prevent the formation of new connections in the brain. You prevent the formation of associative learning. So these are the genes that are being switched on and off in real time when we're learning things. Because, by the way, we are just big fruit flies in this respect. We have Krebs genes too, uh, and they work in much the same way. And you can show that in mice, that mice they work in the same way. So my point here is that we've always thought of genes as consequences, sorry, as causes of behavior, and we've got to start thinking of them also as consequences of behavior. Behavior doesn't change the gene itself, but it does change whether it's switched on or off. 
Um, a very nice experiment was done some years ago by uh, um, Susan Meinecker at uh, uh, Madison um, uh, to show how nature and nurture come together in, in this way. Uh, and it essentially involves um, the fear of snakes in monkeys. Wild monkeys, uh, monkeys that were born in the wild but have been kept in laboratories, are scared stiff of snakes. If you uh, ask them to reach across a snake in order to get a peanut when they're very hungry, they won't. They'll cower in the back of the cage screaming. Um, you can repeat, you repeat the experiment with a, with a toy snake, and they're just as frightened of Well, they're nearly as frightened of them. Lab-born monkeys, which were born in the laboratory, are not frightened of snakes. They will happily reach across the snake to get at the peanut. So clearly, that shows you that fear of snakes is learnt, not innate, in old nature versus nurture terms. Um, but how on earth do you learn a fear of snakes? I mean, after all, if you, um, uh, if you have a bad experience with a snake, you're usually dead. Um, whereas if you don't have a bad experience with a snake, then you haven't learned the lesson. So um, it's, it's hard to imagine that all these uh, wild-caught monkeys uh, have directly acquired their fear of snakes. So it must be some kind of social learning. There must be something going on in which the monkeys are learning from, from the way each other behaves. So what Susan Meinecke did was she showed the lab-born monkey a video of the wild-born monkey reacting with fear to a snake. Uh, and she then tested the lab-born monkey with a snake. And now the lab-born monkey is frightened of a snake. It's learnt very quickly um, from the video that it saw uh, that uh, it really should be frightened of snakes. Well, um, exactly what we thought, social learning. Where's the nature in this? doesn't seem to be any. There is, because Susan Meinecke then doctored the video so that on the bottom half of the screen where the snake had been, there is now a flower. And she shows exactly the same video with the same terrified reaction by the, the, the wild-born monkey to a naive lab-born monkey. Uh, and uh, it should learn to be frightened of flowers. Flowers, incidentally, rather sadly, are things which these monkeys haven't ever seen before uh, living in a laboratory. And they're not in the least frightened of flowers. Um, they just learn that some monkeys are crazy. Um, <laughs> So what's going on? How come you can teach a monkey to be frightened of a snake, but you can't teach it to be frightened of a flower? And the answer almost certainly is that there is an innate component to, to, to fear of snakes, but it has to be awoken by a learning experience. So you cannot say this is either nature or nurture. You've got to say it's a combination of the two. My argument essentially is that... Uh, we have an encoded genome. We have a, a DNA genome with, with a set um, sequence. But it has to be expressed. It has to be switched on. Um, and when it's switched on, it produces our bodies, and our bodies behave. But behavior alters which genes we're switching on and which genes we're switching off. And that is essentially, in outline, the resolution to the nature-nurture argument, because it's essentially a circular system. Um, learning, we now know, is affected by uh, changes in gene expression. So that's why I say it's not nature versus nurture, but nature 
via nurture. Now, where does this leave the old philosophical debates about free will and determinism? Um, if you consult philosophers, they're on the whole rather um, um, uh, uh, gloomy about free will, I find. Um, Spinoza said that uh, the only difference between a human being going through life and a stone rolling down a hill uh, is that the, the stone is under no illusion that it's in control of its destiny. Um, um, and David Hume said that um, either our actions are determined, in which case there's nothing we can do about them, uh, or our actions are random, in which case there's nothing we can do about them. Well, that doesn't seem very satisfactory, because we clearly do have something that seems to be like free will. We feel we can, uh, I can get up and walk out of here at this minute if I want. So where's it coming from uh, if, if we are also creatures of, 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 our, of our genes? And I think the answer is that because of that circular process where the genes can affect, um, sorry, where the behavior can affect the genes, that's how you escape from these kinds of, of dilemmas. Um, but the two uh, more recent philosophers who have, um, um, uh, I think, said the most insightful things about this are William James, who said, uh, who made this extraordinary remark that um, uh, human beings are likely to have more instincts than other animals, um, uh, and that this, this doesn't contradict the fact that they would also have free will. Um, that the, the man, the animal richest in instinctive impulses, uh, would never seem the fatal automaton, which a merely instinctive animal would be. So, in other words, we, it's quite possible that we may be subject to internal impulses um, even more than, say, a fruit fly, but that doesn't make us uh, any, that doesn't subtract one whit from our free will. Um, and Dan Dennett, who has made the point that free will is not something you either have or you don't, it's a gradual thing, it's, it's something that. Um, uh, that there are degrees of, um, and the freedom of a bird to fly wherever it wants is definitely a kind of freedom, a distinct improvement on the freedom of a jellyfish to float wherever it wants, uh, but a poor cousin of our human freedom. Knowledge of the roles of our genes and the genes of other species around us is not an enemy of human freedom, but one of its best friends, says Dan. So, ladies and gentlemen, on that note, which I hope is a bit uplifting, um, I will finish. I think uh, Matt would be pleased to uh, take questions. And there are two roving microphones, um, one over here and one back there. And so if you raise your hand and I call on you to uh, ask a question, please wait for the microphone to come so you can speak and everybody will be able to hear it. Um, right here. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Ridley, in your uh, book, you discuss uh, male homosexuality extensively. What about female homosexuality? Um, yeah, the, the, um, the, the argument goes that there's, the, there's, there's been quite a lot of work now looking at um, where male homosexuality is coming from. And, uh, and uh, it, the, the, there does seem to be good evidence from, uh, I'm struggling to remember the name of the guy in Canada, but um, uh, that there's, a, there's an early nurture influence, if you like, which looks like a nature influence. Um, in other words, uh, an effect um, uh, of an immune response in the womb 
uh, when you're in a womb that has had male fetuses in it before that have primed the, 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 the immune response, which shuts down some uh, hormonal uh, response in, in the developing brain. So that would be rather a nice example in a sense because it's, it's nurture. It's a response to an environmental trigger in the womb, but it looks like nature because it's before you're born and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, uh, as for female homosexuality, um, uh, I don't know of any studies that have, have shed light on the origin of that. There's no, no necessary reason why it should be caused by the same mechanism because human beings are default females like all mammals uh, and birds are the other way around. Birds are default males, but mammals are, are default females. In other words, uh, you have to do something active to turn the creature into a male. You have to switch on the testis determining factor on the Y chromosome. And if that gene is not switched on, but you've got otherwise a perfectly normal Y chromosome, you'll grow up as a female. So uh, clearly, uh, that whole process of masculinization um, is going to be involved in the process of, of male homosexuality. Something else may well be involved in the process of female homosexuality, but I don't know of any studies that, that have, that have um, identified what it is. Take another question. Go ahead. Uh, why the monkeys are endowed with uh, encoded with genes for fear of uh, snakes, but not with flowers? Why? Why are they equipped with with, yes. with fear of snakes and not with flowers? It's not just monkeys, it's us too. I mean, people... I mean, you, you, most, your example. An awful lot of... If, if you think about the things that people have phobias for, it's snakes, spiders, uh, the dark, deep water. These are all genuinely dangerous things. Um, snakes and spiders are the two most venomous groups of creatures on the planet. Um, uh, the, 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 the one thing we ought to be frightened of is cars, <laughs> guns <laughs> and things like that. And we're not. You don't get phobias to those kind of things. So what we're seeing here is an echo of something that was dangerous um, in, in the Pleistocene past for us and still is dangerous for a wild-born born monkey. But it, it helps to program into the species a, an innate fear of snakes. But for some reason, it's been programmed in in such a way that it has to be uh, alerted. That probably helps to calibrate it, if you think about it. If... if, if you know, the, 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 the program might misfire, but if, if it only fires when someone else is saying, help, help, there's a cobra over there, then um, it'll, get, it'll get associated with exactly the right creature. Um, so I think, I think, you know, there's an evolutionary reason why uh, you, would want, you would expect a, a fear of dangerous animals to be programmed into a monkey or a human being. So, over there. You've talked about how behavior influences gene expression. Um, can you say a few words about chemical um, exposure? Yeah. Um, this is a very interesting topic because I, I, I think there's a whole undiscovered sort of universe out there. I mean, we, th there's a lot of hints beginning to emerge about how specific things in our diet um, may be helping or hindering our health by switching on or off genes. Uh, 
Um, some of do you want to come back on that? Yeah. Yes, yes, possibly. I was thinking more specifically of, of you know, some of the things like omega-3 fatty acids um, probably are cofactors that help. This isn't actually the only way they work because they work by changing the structures of membranes. But, um, but they might also, there's some sus suspicion that actually the levels of them change the expression of certain genes, things like that. So there are going to be biochemical things that we ingest that, that alter which genes we're expressing. And those, I think, are going to, you know, going to turn out to be an important aspect of, of medical understanding in the future. Um, I have a question for you before I go to the next one, which is a little bit beyond uh, um, the exact topic that you've been talking about. But when you mentioned the, the gene that uh, uh, determines whether the vole is monogamous or polygamous and it's um, variable among human beings. Can you imagine a point in the future when the Gattaca scenario occurs where uh, you have a potential spouse and you decide to test them without them knowing to see whether they'll be monogamous or not? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's, 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 it's a splendid idea, isn't it? You know, um, how do, how's the conversation going to go, Lee? Um, you know, would you like to go out tonight? Um, uh, to dinner. Um, before you say yes or no, do you mind if I test your vasopressin receptor gene? <laughs> it's not exactly romantic, is it? No. I mean, my feeling is that, that from, from what I remember, um, I was only too delighted that anyone would go out with me. I, was, you know, I wasn't, wasn't, wasn't going to, you know, at that age, I wasn't going to reject them on the basis of the wrong vasopressin receptor gene. Be, um, before you got married. Before I got married, yes. That's great. Um, uh, I, I think it's vanishingly inconceivable that people will give up the old way of deciding um, uh, who they want to go out with. Um, uh, but it would be quite intriguing. We know from the twin studies there is a high heritability in modern society for divorce. If you're, if you're an adopted person, uh, your divorce probability is much more similar to your biological parent's divorce probability than your adoptive parent's uh, divorce probability. So, um, uh, you know, there's something inherited there, which is an inability to hold down a marriage. Obviously, it can't be 100% inherited because the other partner is involved too. But, um, uh, the, you know, that would, you know, perhaps the people who are more likely to get divorced have um, shorter um, vasopressin receptor gene promoters. Um, it would fit into your idea of nurture... Uh Influencing nature, yes. sort of the same feedback. Yes, except it would become, there would be an extra step, which would be consciousness. You know, um, you've consciously decided to, to, to uh, affect it. Yeah. Mark? Moving there, do you have any general advice for us as places like Kansas march into the past with an anti evolutionary perspective? <laughs> Sorry, advice. Um, Advice, say, for I'm an educator. Do you, I mean, sort of, do you have advice right. for what I see as a looming sort of yeah. choice for ignorance? Um. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, well, I wouldn't disagree with that characterization. I, I, you know, we, the, the more we look at um, uh, the, you know, all these kind of things, the, the harder it gets to, to say that, you know, the deep homology with the fruit fly 
doesn't point to an ancient evolutionary past, etc., etc. Um, I suppose one argument that, that I'm always surprised has not been used more and that might in some sense sort of reconcile things is that we now know for absolutely sure that, there was, that, that, that all life on this planet is descended from one ancestor. Um, so, you know, if we could... There's an obvious compromise, which is you get to decide who made the ancestor if we can have evolution. Over in the right corner. Uh, wait a moment for, this, for the mic to come. Um, so maybe you already addressed this, but in case you didn't, in terms of these, uh, the ability for this gene expression, this change to occur in the brain, are there, is there like, you know, certain periods, say young adulthood, when it occurs at higher rates than other periods of life, or could you kind of go into you know, how much that varies through the lifespan? Yeah, no, I think that's a very interesting question, because um, uh, there the, the clearly are what, what are known as critical periods when we are more vulnerable, if that's the right word, to learning certain experiences than others. Um, uh, you know, um, sort of, we're, we're sensitive to, to picking up things. Phobias and things like that can, can be, you know, picked up at certain ages. Language is the obvious one. There's, there's clearly a, a window during which you can learn to speak. And if you're prevented from learning to speak during that, that, that period, uh, you never really can handle grammar properly after that. And we know that from horrible, unfortunate and unintentional experiments. Um, uh, um, and it's the same, actually, with accent, that, that be, after the age of 15, it's much harder to change someone's accent. Before the age of 15, it's very easy. That's why Henry Kissinger speaks with a German accent and his younger brother speaks with an American accent, for example. Um, uh, but so, you know, so in that sense, there are, th th something's going on. And we actually have the beginnings of an understanding of what it is in, in some systems, uh, which is that there are, you know, there's, a, there's a gene which kind of switches on the, the open period and switches off the open period. And, and it's known in, in um, uh, the, um, the development of uh, the visual system in chicks, which gene is involved in that, which is quite an exciting first step. So, yeah, um, clearly there's a lot more plasticity in our brains in youth than there is in old age, and that's down to which genes have set up the plasticity and which have set, switched it off again. Yes, in the back there. Uh, I wanted to ask you your uh, views on the relationship between diet and uh, IQ. Uh, we know that um, uh, IQ scores are uh, are influenced by uh, genes. Uh, identical twins raised apart tend to have IQs that uh, are much closer to one another than those uh, uh, who, uh, who are not identical twins, fraternal twins uh, raised in the same family. Uh, we know that uh, adopted kids tend to have IQ scores that are much closer to their uh, biological parents and to their adoptive parents. At the same time, however, uh, IQ scores over the last 75 years have been going up in all industrialized uh, uh, countries by uh, a very substantial uh, amount, uh, as much as uh, three IQ points uh, per decade. And many people have uh, claimed that uh, 
The reason for that is uh, simply better uh, diet, that uh, brains uh, are developing better, uh, women get better uh, neonatal uh, nutrition, and that uh, this is as, as important in determining uh, our outcomes in terms of uh, IQ uh, as, uh, uh, as heredity is here. What, what's your own uh, take on uh, this uh, issue? Um, very, it's a very good question, and, and uh, it's often called the Flynn effect, the fact that it's going up at three points per decade uh, um, after the guy who, who pointed it out. And um, uh, I don't think the, the, the answer is in yet as, as to what's causing it. Uh, <coughs> my instinct would be that diet has to be a part of it. Um, it's also been argued that sort of we're now exposed to a much richer visual environment, television and so on, uh, and, you know, well, television isn't usually thought of as an IQ booster, but never mind. Um, um, uh, you know, both of those, whether it's sort of the visual environment or diet, are likely to be nonlinear. In other words, there's probably a point at which you're getting enough omega-3 fatty acids, and it doesn't help to have more. Um, like, you know, if a child has no toys to play with, it's probably going to grow up uh, somewhat mentally deprived or depressed, if you like. Uh, if it has one toy, that's going to make a huge difference. If it has two toys, that's going to improve it still. By the time you get to 5,000 versus 5,001 toys, which is roughly how many my children have, um, uh, it's not going to make a huge difference, if you see what I mean. So there must be... It would it, be interesting to see how much we sort of we can get these kind of threshold effects work, worked out for, for, for IQ, I think. Yes. Um, Roger. Coming. It's Mike is coming. Uh, thank you. Um, you've talked of genes and of uh, nurture and upbringing as determinants, basically, of adult human behavior. And um, so if I were a lawyer, and lawyers are doing more and more of this these days, uh, they, they are pointing out the fact that a person is born with a certain maybe catechetic sequence in his genes, and maybe he was brought up in a certain family um, who abused him or didn't abuse him, and therefore he behaved in a certain way. Um, sometimes these things are used as a partial defense, I think, from time to time in court, and certainly... Um, I can see it happening more and more, but perhaps more importantly from a philosophical point of view, when does a person's um, personal responsibility take over from their genes and their nature? Because those are the two things you've emphasized, and eventually there's got to be a third part that comes in there or doesn't there. Yes. Um, uh, in a sense, it's, it's just as bad whether you're... Uh, positing nurture or nature as the cause of someone's behavior. Because after all, we've used you know, the insanity defense and other forms of abusive upbringing defense uh, for, for um, uh, uh, criminals for a long time. So there's nothing different, really, throwing the word gene in, in there th th than otherwise. Um, and um, uh, Terry Moffat, I think it was, who, whose study on, on abusive parenting, uh, producing antisocial behavior, was asked, you know, what's the significance of this for um, uh, personal responsibility for, uh, you know, or, you know how, how does this work with, with respect to, to child abuse? 
And she said, well, we were against child abuse before and we're against child abuse after. <laughs> Which I think in a sense is quite a good answer, although it sounds a bit flippant. In other words, that, that um, um, uh, the, the personal responsibility is, is something that is about the agency. It's not about how you deal with it. Um, and uh, when somebody uses the insanity defense for having committed a murder, um, you don't say, well, in that case, you can go free. You say, well, then you have a different kind of treatment, but you're still in a custodial thing or whatever. So on the whole, it leads to a slightly more humane treatment of, of people who, are, who, who have... Who have um, um, have done it. The other point, of course, is that if you said, look, um, uh, murder's in my genes, um, uh, so I didn't do it, that doesn't kind of make sense. So most people, most people who, who are accused of murder are, are arguing that they didn't do it. So it doesn't really help if they, if they claim to have murder in their genes. Do you see what I mean? So in fact, all it does is change sentencing. It doesn't change conviction on the whole. So I think it's a minor issue, is my view, this personal responsibility in, in, in the legal system one. But there may well be um, uh, lawyers here. Who, I'm looking at one who can, uh, who can say something rather more intelligent on the subject. Susan. Right, right. Right. Well, I think that uh, we'll give uh, Matt's voice a rest, and please uh, join me in thanking him again for his wonderful presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, a little didgeridoo.